Hi everyone, I'm Amy Wright, and this is Hashtag Dead, a conversation about life and death. This episode of Hashtag Dead is brought to you by support from our listeners and by Care Patrol. Care Patrol is a nationwide service helping families find safe, and affordable senior living options. They know that choosing assisted living or other care for your loved one can be a stressful and difficult time in your life. Their certified senior advisors will assist you in finding the answers. They pre-screen and monitor the care and violation history of all the communities they recommend. And much like a realtor, they'll tour with their clients and guide them through the process of choosing a new living arrangement and connecting them to local healthcare resources. The best news, their services are completely free to families as they're paid by the thousands of providers in their network. The last thing you should have to worry about is if the community you choose will be a safe and reliable place. Safer senior living is your goal and it's Care Patrol's mission. Visit carepatrol.com for more information. Pete McMaster's legacy is his children. In this episode of Hashtag Dead, Christian McMaster, the youngest of Pete's three boys, shares how his family responded to Pete's Alzheimer's diagnosis in 2013. He details what it was like to make an international move with his young family in 2017, and what it took to stay close to his mom, brothers, and dad across an ocean and as Pete's Alzheimer's progressed. Ultimately, Christian shares the moving and meaningful way he chose to honor Pete's legacy at the time of his death in 2020 against the backdrop of a global pandemic. Christian McMaster, welcome to Hashtag Dead. Hello, Amy. (laughs) Hello. I am looking forward to asking you more questions just so we can all enjoy your accent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh, i'm clinging on to it for dear life um <laughs> little by little it, it's starting to get a little bit inflected with some uh, with some american but i'm trying my best i don't feel like austin really has an accent so much but different parts of texas is it do you feel like it's bending your words at all in a different way are you ad- adapting and adopting well i don't feel like it is but whenever i speak to my fellow brits they most definitely say that it is <laughs> really oh that's wild you know, when I started um, recording these episodes, I got teased for having an accent here in Austin, and I, I don't hear it. But now, having been in Austin for a while and being back with, you know, uh, Midwesterners, I'm like, gosh, that accent is so jarring. It's so great. <laughs> like, why do we have to be so hard on our consonants? I know. I love it, actually. I mean, obviously, I married one, so... Uh... <laughs> Well, can you tell us that story? Can you can you talk about how you got from uh, the UK and how you met your bride? And, and that's how we met. Um, Anna, your wife, is a good friend of mine. She's one of my favorite humans in the um, you know supporting senior space. So I'm Wonderful. a big fan. I'm uh, a big and, fan of Team McMaster. Absolutely. Me too. And I'm saying that on record because I'm sure she'll listen back to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yes, of course. No, so we um, we we met at work. You know, sort of a, a slightly boring uh, story of, of kind of office romance, really. Um, Anna was in Lon- living in London. You know, she's lucky enough to have an Italian passport, so she had actually lived in Milan for a year before moving to London. She fell in love with London first, I think, before she even met me. And she had been there for a year or so when she started to work. She came so to really, work at the company that I worked for. So between the two of you, she's really the fancy one. Yeah, well, the, the, she's the one with the with with two passports. Um, okay. <laughs> I still have yet to receive my uh, my US one. Um, so yeah, so we met at work. Um, what 16, 17 years ago now? Wow. And how did you get from the UK to the US? Well, we uh, we dated for a bit and it was all going very well. And, and Anana, to her credit, you know, very much planted her flag and said a few years into our relationship that, hey, look, if this is going to go any further, you know, if we're going to get married and do the kids and the family thing, you should know that 
I do not intend to live in England for the rest of my life. Hmm. And, that, uh, and, and that she always saw her life, uh, her completing her life in, in the US. Obviously, by that point, we visited Texas, where folks live up in Dallas, and the US in general loads, and I fell in love with the country. Always, uh, always have loved America. So for me, actually, it wasn't a very big decision or as, as, as big a bombshell as I think she thought it might be. Uh, and, and, and obviously back then, you know, we were a few years away still from even getting married, but, but I was still all in. But of course, you know, fast forward marriage, kids, Anna said, all right, buck, all right, bucko, time to move. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so I was like, great, yeah. I mean, I, I had to sort of disentangle myself from, from work stuff. I used to own a part, own a business at, in London. Um, and then, yeah, but then we, we all moved, the whole family moved when the kids were very young still um, in, in 2017. And what was it like um, leaving your family? That was the hardest part, you know, family and friends, but certainly family more so. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad, my dad had been diagnosed with uh, dementia and early, early stage Alzheimer's about two or three years before we moved. Okay. So we had taken the decision to move before, before that diagnosis. And of course, as, as the date approached when we were due to move, with that happening in the interim, that 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 did, that that made things a little a, a little trickier. Um, you know, I felt a little, I felt bad, obviously leaving leaving my father, but he probably more so just felt bad. Kind of at the, at the point we left, my dad was was in pretty bad shape um, with the disease. So I kind of, I suppose, I felt a little guilty. Um, you know, I've got two older brothers, I'm the youngest of three boys. And uh, we'd all been very close, we'd always been very close to our dad. And uh, we all collectively, with the Alzheimer's, we all, you know, collectively had to, you know, really do our best to, you know, keep in contact with him and, and, and try and, and, and do, our mo- do our utmost to really just to sort of, just to help him get better quality of life and whatever years he had left. So with me leaving for the US, obviously, I... I was aware that that would kind of be, you know, he- making the load a little heavier for those guys. So sure. that was that was tricky. Um, and my mother too, who I'm close with, and my mother and my father were long divorced, but had you know, fortunately have a very good relationship still. And my mother also was very was great actually after the diagnosis in terms of, um, you know, kind of looking after him and doing things for him. So. Uh, so yeah, that was tough. That was the toughest part of it, but you know, it was it was just an opportunity for my family, you know, my new family, my two young boys. Um we just knew that we could give them a better life here. So ultimately it was the right it was the right decision. Well, it sounds to me very modern family. You know, I think that at least for me I have this pretty traditional conservative idea of what you know, family is and does and looks like, and the life that I've created is, is not that. And so, um, yeah, I think it's cool when you say that your folks had been divorced and yet when he needed support that your, your mom rallied. Um, and last year I had an experience where I was managing some of my folks' healthcare stuff uh, in Chicago from Austin and even just across those, you know, 900 miles and change, that was tough. Um, what, what kind of things, kinds of things did you go through, um, you know, trying to be part of facilitating your dad's care, you know, with all the brothers kind of, you know, trying to be supportive in their own respective ways from their own places. And, and can you speak a little bit to, you know, what decisions you ultimately made? Because I, I understand that, you know, some of the supportive community type things aren't uh, aren't a thing in the UK. And mm. um, and when I say the UK, he, he was in England, right? You guys were in he England? He was. Okay. He was living in England. He's originally from Scotland, from Glasgow. Um, but he moved to, to England, you know, when he was in his late teens, early 20s. And, you know, so lived in England for the majority of his life, although much like me over here, he maintained his strong Glaswegian brogue throughout all of 
all of his time. That never that never left him. Yeah, my my boy's dad is uh, Scottish by heritage, and man, that that would die hard. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Glaswegian in particular of all the Scottish uh, dialects, that one's the strong one. But but yeah, so I mean, well. My father, like I suppose, is 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 the case with with with, with many people's parents, even in the grips of Alzheimer's. You know, he absolutely he was fiercely independent, um, and he um, he very much fought any notion of being or, or of not just being you know put in assisted living, but even just having help, even having us come and and, and get help for him. Um, and does, does assisted living in England look like assisted living here? I mean, is it, would you say it's pretty close to apples to apples or is it different? Um, they have a, they, they have a, obviously a slightly better kind of social, um, social services net in the UK. So where the UK is good is if you're like my father, who through uh, quite frankly, I think just poor life decisions, by, by the end of his, his life, he, he had no money and no, and no assets. So for, for someone like my father, he ultimately was able to go into assisted living and it was all paid for by the government and it was, um, and it was a fairly decent level um, care home. Um, and I know that sort of exists here in the US, but, but, but I believe that the services and the quality of places in the UK that you can get still on Medicaid or social services are much better. The problem is, is that because the vast majority of that industry is actually public funded, um, the, uh, the, the, the kind of... The National Health Service, is it kind of like Medicare and then some, like where it covers all of these, encompasses all of these different things? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah, obviously okay. from, yeah, from kind of, from, from hospital services to, to social services. Um, so the NHS is a great thing, but, you know, it's obviously very thinly stretched and um uh, uh, and fortunately you know and again obviously with me being over here the first thing that we needed to arrange was obviously we wanted to try and get uh, someone to come visit my father on a regular basis what, what ultimately become a daily basis he had like hospice you know come and visit him and make meals for him and just check that he wasn't setting the place alight <laughs> um, <laughs> we managed to arrange that but it was lengthy and timely and um my mother actually in that instance really stepped up to the plate and, and arranged all of that for him and that was great for about a year that gave us all a bit of peace of mind because because actually i say that in jest but actually yeah there was at least one occasion where um he did almost set his flat alight because <laughs> he would leave yeah. things on and um so that gave us all a bit of peace of mind that there was at least someone checking in on him um and then ultimately when it came to um transitioning him to assisted living one of my other brothers stepped up to the plate what tended to happen was whoever had the most bandwidth at that particular point in their life would always step up and back when i lived in the uk that often fell to me as well um but when i moved over here obviously with the distance and time difference i was really just kind of out of picture and um you know, I'm very thankful to my family for that. And they never, you know, made me feel bad about it. And they were happy to do it. But, but it, certainly, it certainly made me feel a little guilty at times. Mm. So he, he um, was diagnosed in 2017. At what point is he, does he move to assisted living? Well, so actually that diagnosed, diagnosed a little before then. So I think he was, I think the diagnosis was probably more like 2012, 2013. Oh, wow. Um, okay. You know, and, 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 you know, it's funny, I think kind of heard this said before, but, you know, the diagnosis was, was around then, but I think the signs of it actually in hindsight were much earlier. Um, a lot of his behavior, we just put down to, you know, the kind of dodderiness of an old fella of that generation. Well, um, I think that's, that's so common. I, I, I feel very strongly that family sees changes and will notice things and habits start to, or I'm sorry, patterns start to emerge. But, you know, whether it's calling Anna's business or, or calling um, hospice or whatever, 
it feels like there is usually a major event. There's some kind of crisis where a family has pieced together some sort of solution, you know, that gets them by for a while until the bottom falls out. And then, you know, whether it's the, you know, the example that I use is we knew mom was confused until the day she drove to the grocery store and couldn't remember how to get home. And that's Mm -hmm. when we realized we had a serious, serious problem on our hands. So what you're, what you're telling me doesn't, I mean, it feels really consistent with what some families go through. Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard a lot of anecdotal um, stories that are similar to that too. Yeah, we had our, you know, we had our moment when I think it was my older brother had had a conversation with him, and I distinctly remember him kind of like putting the putting the call out to to the rest of us to say that actually that that's you know we definitely need to get him looked at, um, uh, get get someone get an expert to to check him out because you know this is this is beyond just the normal doddering behaviour of an old fella. So he was diagnosed in around 2013. So yeah, so that was kind of, and there was a kind of gradual um, deterioration leading up to when we ultimately moved to the US in 2017. So so for a few of those early years, I was around and able to kind of, things got too bad. But <clears throat> by the time we moved to the US, you know, it's funny, his, his particular brand of <clears throat> dementia or Alzheimer's was, was strange insofar as, he never, right to the very end, he never uh, forgot his three sons. Obviously, we were his pride and joy. He's mm. loved us, you know, so much. He was a very, he was a bit of a radical father for his for his generation. Actually, he was always extremely hands on and very, very kind of like tactile. And you know, we were all felt we all had a good childhood as far as you know. He was a great father figure for us in that sense. Um, that to me feels exceptional, given that he's a Scottish dad too. Yeah. Yeah. Warm and fuzzy. I mean, there's a reason the state flower is the, or the national flower is the thistle. Like the, it's not warm <laughs> yeah. and fuzzy is not what comes to mind when I think. No, no. And I think that's a fair stereotype in most instances, but he was the exception. Yeah. He was, you know, for, for my dad was, my dad was older than my mother too. My dad was born in 1939. So, you know, we're not, we're talking about, you know, we are talking about depression generation here yeah, almost. Sure. And, uh, uh, you know, from Glasgow, Scotland, which was not a nice place to be in the 40s and 50s. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what that was. His father was a classic Scotsman, fairly strict and dour. And uh, so I don't know what it was about pass that off on, onto my father. But I can see me and my three brothers, and we have all subsequently gone on to have boys. It seems to be our family curse, just boys. Um and uh, we're all very much. We're all our, our our style of father of fatherhood is, is is entirely lifted from our father. You know, my kids. I won't leave them alone. You know, they they, they get annoyed with me sometimes. That I'm a little too much, too much hugging and too, and I think I entirely. I, I think I get that entirely from. That's the influence of of, of my father all over there. That's an amazing uh, legacy to have. You know, that to pass on good fathering i think that's that's powerful stuff yeah my mum told me a story of when she was pregnant with um my uh the my oldest brother austin her middle child her second child um but this was this was 1976 down in 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 england in eastbourne and uh they she was in the ambit back then uh they don't do this anymore but back then that they would have an ambulance come and pick you up um to take you to the hospital when you uh, when when you went into labour, my mother, um, uh, my my father insisted wanted to be in the ambulance and wanted to travel with my mother and be there with her in the hospital. And back then, that just wasn't the dumb thing at all. To the point where the ambulance drivers just didn't wouldn't, weren't going to let him in. Oh wow! Um, and and their attitude, my mum remembers to this day, their attitude was one of like. Why would he even want to do that? Like just complete <laughs> bafflement and confusion as to why a father would not want to just be down the pub <laughs> while all this was taking place. Just, and then just, just get call the phone me call. when it's done. Yeah, and call I'll me when it's around. done. <laughs> but my father was adamant 
you know, and almost ha ended up having fisticuff row with the ambulance drivers just to, in order to, to to get into the ambulance to be there for the birth of his children. Oh, that's wild. You know? <laughs> Meanwhile, your mother is like, I am trying to have a baby right now. Yeah, yeah. My mother's just kind of like, I don't care either way. I just want to get to the hospital. <laughs> Let's get on. <laughs> so they're separate or they're divorced, and she's kind of stepped up to be primary caregiver in his his later years and he's he's had this diagnosis for a while by the time we're in like 2020 yes um as you are hearing about his decline um what kinds of stuff is coming up for you the last couple of years i found very difficult because my only real means of communicating with him was was over the phone um, and uh, obviously with me being living in America and with his general kind of state of mind being as such that, you know, he, he no longer was really able to operate the, his phone himself. It was very much a people, you know, we call him kind of set up. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and also actually come to think of it, he, there was this period which was very frustrating for all of us where in which he used to call constantly and he would call constantly, leave a voice message every time he called and you would wake up in the morning or finish a day's work and there'd be 17 voice messages from dad. Oh, and, wow. uh, <laughs> and so for that reason also, I think we, we just made a decision not to give him my number here because we were worried in case, you know, he would end up spending what little savings he had on uh, on phone calls. Oh, wow. yeah, okay. <laughs> so, um, so my only means to communicate with him was 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 over the phone, and obviously, the quality of those conversations for 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 a long time, you know, were not great. And you know, and 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 I could sense sometimes that he was very confused because, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we were fortunate. It was strange insofar as right until the end, he knew his three sons. He 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 couldn't. It, he, he couldn't necessarily place our names, but he just knew that they were his boys. He knew that he had three sons and he knew that we were them. Mm -hmm. um, that never left. I mean, everything else did. He literally couldn't even offer, operate a telephone or, 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 or kind of you know, negotiate any of the simplest tasks and things in life. But, uh, but that never left him. But what was happening I found a lot was that I would call him and I could sense almost like a scared frustration uh, and confusion in him when I would call because I could I could almost hear the cogs in his brain trying to remember kind of figure out like remember who is this again mm -hmm. that's calling me which right. son is it does he live he doesn't no he doesn't live in America he, why is it in America you know and, and mm -hmm. almost you know and I Sometimes I, it got to the point where I wondered whether or not it was actually, you know, a counterproductive thing to do because I was calling him, and, you know, because I wanted to give him a quality of life. I wanted him to know that I was thinking about him. And I was doing it ultimately on the surface for his benefit. And then I did start to wonder at times whether or not what I was doing was actually just making it worse, you know, interrupting his, more interrupting his day <laughs> with just this, with this just confusion bomb that, that would then potentially kind of, you know, disorientate him for the rest of his day, you know. And so that was noodling around in my mind a lot. And I think I, I was obviously consciously on occasion just not calling him because of that. And then, you know, and then that's, a, and then that's an evolving issue because suddenly you might go a week or two and you haven't called him. And then when you call him, obviously the confusion is even worse. And then... Um, and, 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 you know, we can't see each other. You know, we're, he was incapable of, you know, he was well past the stage of, I mean, to be honest, even before his Alzheimer's, I don't know how he would have figured out WhatsApp or, or video calling. Um, so obviously he wasn't, a, you know, we didn't have that. Um, so it was, it was difficult. Um, it was, it, 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 it was hard. And I just, I just remember carrying the load. Um, a lot on a daily basis every you know every moment that every, every hour of every day I would think about him or should I be calling him and crap I haven't called him yet and I wonder, I wonder if he's okay um and, uh, and I, you know that, that was it was subtle and it was something I probably didn't really you know I have to I had to backload a little bit almost on that because I think that was something I didn't really appreciate what was happening to me at the time 
just getting on with life and other stuff and but oh yeah after, so after to... we passed you know i think well after we passed i think i realized actually that that, that load was lifted in, in a strange way that's a really important thing you bring up Two uh, two things have come up for me while you're you're sharing this and the first one is that for a while, I was a care manager for a non-medical home care company. So the folks that do like caregiving services. And sometimes, a lot of times, there was an event where they recognized, you know, an, an older adult in the family couldn't be without uh, a companion or some supervision, you know, for issues of safety. Sometimes that was the case. But it seemed like um, more often I would get calls where, um, someone was starting to be confused and they wanted someone a couple hours a day to make sure that meals were being met or made so that they knew their loved one was eating or that the right medications were being taken and not, you know, pocketed or, you know, stashed somewhere or accidentally spilled and mixed up. And it felt like so often they were, they were already apologizing and saying, you know, look, mom was the most amazing mother. She was so doting and devoted. And now she's angry all the time. Or, you know, same with same with dad. He's just he's real grumpy. And he's, mm-hmm. he, he does, he's so resistant to the idea. And I, I feel like it's really consistent where especially at the beginning of a diagnosis, like Alzheimer's and other dementias, you're you're cognizant enough to recognize that there's a piece missing, that something is absent, that you should know something or you should be able to find something or do something. And yet like that operating manual just is gone. And yeah. so I, I, when you talk about the, um, you know, the confusion, I, I remember hearing about that frustration and it's, it's not normal like in everyday life or even in aging, but in the, against the backdrop of, a disease like Alzheimer's, it's mm. totally normal. Like it's just part of the process. Yeah, you're right. It's so right because it's almost like he was, you know, he was cognizant enough to 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 realize that he should be embarrassed by not remembering this stuff and by and by feeling confused. You know, it was like it's almost like he knew somewhere deep down that he should know this information and was frustrated and, and almost and almost embarrassed a little. And he would try and fake it a little bit to me as well. Like I could see he was almost like, you know, doing the fake thing, which like like we all do sometimes, even now when someone comes up to you at a party or in a public setting right, and you they, have they no know idea you and remember. you don't know them and <laughs> and you're, you know, those kind those kind of default, you know, kind of things that you say to sort of, you know, to try and style it out. <laughs> um you know, I, I would I would get that from him sometimes, and it would be it would be heartbreaking, but it would also be quite amusing to think that he was still worried about you know how how he looked and how he you know how he came across. It's so wild where these things live in our minds too, where you know you can you can pull something from a deeper place in your brain like embarrassment, but that name you know that that you want to be on the tip of your tongue that's buried somewhere in some kind of locked drawer and you just can't get to that yes absolutely uh, i regularly call my two boys by the wrong names i wonder, <laughs> I wonder oh no <laughs> my grandma me? and grandpa had five kids and so they make jokes all the time about how sometimes you'd have to get through all five names before you got to the right one and, uh, <laughs> yeah. but but the other thing that you you mentioned that I think is so important to normalize is that you had been doing all of this emotional work. And like you said, you didn't even recognize the the impact that it was having on you or the toll it was taking on, on you until after it was, you know, the weight of it was missing. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, especially when you're talking about anticipatory grief and knowing that um, the end of this experience, this battle, um, this process, it's it's coming and you kind of dread it. And correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth. I don't want to say, you know, some. I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing, but if I've gotten part of it wrong, please correct me. But where you, you feel like the end is going to suck for the pain of loss, but then also at least that this the daily struggle that his you know that your loved one's pain um at least that part is behind and there's there's a little bit of relief that comes with that too yeah no i agree 
100% with you on that one. And I'm very open about that and, and, and honest and, you know, potentially you almost might seem heartless uh, about it to, to, to someone, to maybe to perhaps to someone that hasn't dealt with this in their own family or something. But yeah, it was, there was certainly more relief at the end with my father. He had a very long illness in the end, I think, you know, what, yeah. you know, nearly 10 years of it. Um, and, you know, and there were, uh, you know, a lot of tribulation, a lot of emotional, you know, work and turmoil in, in the interim. And, and, you know, towards in that last, you know, and obviously with the, with the timing of it was awful because my level of guilt was at its peak during COVID because, of course, at that point, I didn't even have the comfort of knowing that he was at least getting to hang out with my two brothers and, and his family and back there. And that my father was always fiercely independent and loved, just loved being out and about. And I just knew that the COVID, the initial lockdown, obviously in the UK was pretty harsh too. That would have been awful for him. I mean, he was in a home by that point, thankfully. Um, and so I suppose had been kind of adapting to a version of lockdown anyway. But, um, um, you know, that the, my, my level of guilt about him and his quality of life and if he was safe and if he was okay and how he was doing emotionally was, was raised hugely in the last six months of his life. Mm -hmm. So he passed in, in July of, of, of 2020. So for that six months leading up to it and the few times that we did talk, you know, and he just sounded that you could just hear in his voice. I think he had just at that point, I think he, he, he himself even had just sort of given up on it a bit just had enough, just had enough of it and was ready. Say, hold that thought for a quick sec while we pause for a word from our sponsor. So yeah, like at the end, it was, it was a lot of relief, you know, of course the, the, the stress of it, the tricky part was obviously then being able to say goodbye to him properly, what with COVID and me being here and travel. What was that like? What did your, your family come up with? Well, that, you know, it was, um, it was July of 2020. Um, things in the UK were a little better. So the UK got really hammered in at the beginning in with rest of Europe in, in March and April were pretty bad times for the UK. By the summer, things had cooled down a little bit. They were still very much on lockdown. And there was still, you know, quarantining happening for international travellers and so forth. But if you recall, we probably buried it because it's so traumatic. But July of 2020 was where here in Austin, Texas, is when we really felt it for the first time. So actually, the, you know, in, that was our first wave. And things were really bad here. And it was pre-vaccinations and it really felt like COVID was just waiting for you outside the door. Um, I, I remember. About, they talk about dog years and I really feel like there are COVID years now because yeah. you're talking about that. And I was there. I mean, I was working in marketing and healthcare at the time. And the expectation was you're still going to be making your 10 to 12, you know, visits to places a day. And it was like, but you can't go anywhere or do anything. And it, it feels like 1 million years ago. I know. Now. I know. It was, it was yeah the the longest shortest time ago wasn't it so right. so yeah so that was so obviously when he was taken in he was taken to um he had been deteriorating and 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 he he obviously he was losing his function you know like often is the case that that, that you know the the damning thing at the end for some someone suffering Badly with Alzheimer's, he was starting to lose all of his basic function, function, functioning skills, swallowing, yeah. chewing. So he was he was deathly thin and was in a real bad way. So had been in and out, had had to go in and out of of, of of hospital for a couple of times, and then, but fortunately, mercifully, literally a couple of weeks before he went into hospital for the for the last time, the UK had lifted restrictions on visits. So he was at least allowed to have up to two visitors at his bedside. Now, can you imagine if it had happened a month previous? Because, and this happened in the UK, people were slipping away on their own without any family next. It happened a ton all over. And it is offensive to me because 
you know, there's a patient's bill of rights that says a patient is, you know, entitled to die alone if they want to, you know, some people don't want family around, they want to, you know, pass on their own. And other people, uh, the, the other side of that is you are entitled to have people with you. And so the idea that, that people had to die alone to me is crushing because I think that end of life is as sacred a time as, you know, beginning of life. Yeah. Isn't that awful? Oh, so we, we just, you know, again, that was sort of one in, one in a catalog, catalog of things ultimately that we felt quite blessed for, like, you know, that they, that they were at least allowed to get in there and see him. But like, you know, that was, that was probably the first that he had seen anyone in my family for a number of months was, was there in hospital. And, and actually that, that perked him up a bit to the point where they actually thought he might pull through, like, you know, that, 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 that gave him a boost as such that they thought actually he, he was starting to, he was starting to eat again and it was starting to look good. But ultimately I think his body had just deteriorated to a, to a degree where he had to go back in and ultimately, and ultimately that he passed there, but he passed there with, you know, family at his bedside. And, and I was able to, you know, talk to him on video because one of my brothers was there with with him and operating it for him i was able to say my you know my last few words to him and everything like that and you know he and and he still even yeah even then he kind of even though he was very very poorly you know his heart you could see in his eyes he had he acknowledged he could see it was me which was amazing to think of really but um i'm so that for both of you that you got that uh, yeah absolutely and i couldn't have done that unless one of my brothers could have been at his bedside to operate that phone that we could at least just see each other. You know, it's um, <laughs> amazing to think. But so the funeral was happening, and then you know there was there was a little bit actually for the first time. I suppose everyone deals with these things in their own ways, and there was a little bit of uh, you know. My first thought was, well, whatever, COVID. It's my dad's funeral, so I'm going. Um, you know, there would have been a 10 day quarantine. Um, I would have had to have fly, flown for, you know, probably two weeks. I'd have had to have quarantined on the way back here as well, potentially. It would have meant, you know, two weeks, 20 days away from my family. Obviously, height of COVID, no vaccination. There's the obviously the, the potential danger of, of, of that side of things as well. But regardless of all of that, my initial instinct was simply, well, that doesn't matter. I'm going, you know. It just didn't even cross my mind not to. I think I've been kind of, get, we'd been preparing for this day. And in my head, I was just without question, this, the day it happened, I would be on a plane and on my way to the UK to be at my father's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, in the reality of the moment, um, there was a lot more to consider there. And the, and, and, and the main one being, you know, never mind any inconvenience or, or anything like that. It was simply just a, just a question of safety, really. And, 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 and the prospect of being away from home and my family and my two boys um, for such a long period of time during a global pandemic and what something happened here and I wasn't around, what something happened to me. And ultimately I landed on the decision not to fly because I felt that my, uh, my own family, my two boys um, had to take priority. And um, yeah. And like every, you know, family going through this, it's, it's not a luxury where, which probably seems like a weird word to use when talking about death, but the rest of life doesn't just stop and stand still for us to, you know, mourn and process our grief. We're, especially during the pandemic, the language I've used in the past is that living space became workspace, became recreation space. It's like everything, instead of slowing down and letting us process it was more like it slowed down and the walls started closing in and so you know, talking about your family like you're you and your wife are both working and you're you're trying to figure out kids schooling stuff and dealing with all the things that come with with parenting and life while you know this other event is is happening yeah and and and, and ultimately (laughs) actually what clinched it for me i think was i kind of I don't know if someone said this to me or, or if I just came up, came to this conclusion myself, but I know for a fact that my, my, my dad in a previous time in a coherent space presented with that same decision would have absolutely not flown. 
you know, my father, my father, the father he was and how important his three boys were to him. And I just kind of knew deep down that, you know, he would, of course he would love for me to be there to say goodbye to him, but not, not at that, not at that cost. So I came to that decision and that was a difficult decision for certainly one of my family members to take, you know, one of my brothers was kind of pushed back on that and, and very much was of the mindset that I, I had to come at all costs. And he and I, you know, had to sort of figure that out between the two of us. And we did in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, ultimately it meant that, you know, they had the funeral, but I wasn't able to attend. It was a small funeral because, you know, things were still fairly locked down. It was, I think it was a maximum of six people were allowed at that point, rule of six, they called it in the UK in, in any indoor event. Um, so we had a small funeral and um, we just hooked it up to the video. So I streamed it live. <laughs> How new age is that? I live streamed right. my father's right. funeral. <laughs> yeah, I think I think COVID changed everything. You know, you, you mentioned that your your dad was like depression era. And I his age is more consistent, like with what my grandparents age is, um, even though I think we're probably real close to the same age. And I just, they had little quirks, little peccadilloes that they acquired habits they picked up from living through the depression. And, and you can see how across their generation, that experience changed everyone. And I, I can't help but speculate and wonder about how, living through this pandemic is going to, I, I wonder about it more for my kids, how it's going to affect them. You know, like yeah. our, my kids are just a little older than yours, but thinking about like how their school, you know, half of their school experience at this point has been virtual school. Like it mm -hmm. hasn't been at all what we grew up with. Right. And so like masking all, all of these things that are, have just become what we do now. Like, yeah. That's so interesting, Amy. I hadn't thought of that, but you are so right. Yeah, we are, you know, they will absolutely be the products of product of this this generation will be the product, you know, it will it will have had an effect on them in some way. It I mean will, we it will manifest itself in some version. And we look at, it. you know, a virtual funeral as something so strange, but you know, our kids will have done virtual graduations and we've like live streamed weddings and it's just Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, yeah, I think that I, the whole kind of like remote thing and the live streaming and the, you know, I think we were heading that way anyway. And I think the pandemic certainly hastened that hugely, didn't it? You know, I think we would have got there probably 20 without a pandemic would have probably got to that place in 20 years. The pandemic just brought that forward hugely, that kind of, you know, ability to do everything in life remotely. That's um, that's wild because we, we talked about like dog years and pandemic years. And in some ways it feels like it's stretched out time immeasurably and like everything is going so slow and it is feels so much harder and takes so much effort. And, and to your point, sure expedited some other things. Yeah. Yeah. In a good way. I think I work in recruitment, so I'm always finding I'm trying to help companies and clients find people to work for them. And, uh, you Which know, is no small task right now. Absolutely, especially you know, and especially right now. Um, not only do we have the tools for people to work remotely, you know, much more sophisticated tools. In the in the last two years, the evolution of that has has, has, has expedited. But um, you know, with staff shortages, I mean, you know, it, you're a fool at the moment if you're not prepared to. Um, uh, you know, hire someone for a job remotely, unless it absolutely categorically cannot be done so. Um, because there's a talent shortage and you need as big a pool of candidates you can. And so it's been, it's been a really interesting journey on, on, on that front. But yeah, I think, you know, God, the masks and the general cleanliness, you know, I've, I watched a TV show the other day where someone went into a phone box. Um, and I just thought, Shit, you'd never use a phone box anymore, would you? <laughs> that, that's where all the cooties live. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, exactly. And this was a TV show from like, it was a British show from like 2014 or something. And I was just was thinking, God, like, you know, how long will it, will it ever go away? How long will it take actually for us, or those of us that have lived through this to kind of, to ever drop those, those, those kind of routines that, 
they've adapted around the pandemic. I, I don't know. It's interesting. But, yeah. I know that I'm smushing two totally unrelated things together in saying this, but when the parallels were initially drawn between the Spanish flu and COVID, the first thing that popped into my mind was nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, which I know is totally not related, but it was like, nobody expects Spanish influenza. And so <laughs> I have that in my brain. And I think about, you know, in 2014, nobody was looking forward going, you know what we should probably prepare for? Well, I mean, maybe virologists and like preppers were thinking of it, but no one was saying, you know, what could just be right around the corner is a global pandemic. I would yes. have laughed. And, and <laughs> yeah. there was a moment sometime during quarantine where I was doing laundry and watching doomsday preppers, which I always looked at as like, they're cuckoo for co- for Cocoa Puffs, like they're way out there. Except when they started talking, the interview would include like, what are you prepping for? And so many of them said global economic collapse. And I'm like, well, I just had to wait two weeks for toilet paper. So I maybe it's, co- I don't know, it could be coming. <laughs> but I, another um, kind of side effect um, and it is now kind of a running joke between Anna and I is we, Anna and I met at a networking event. Um, it was like a speaking educational thing. And I was brand new in Austin and she's very gregarious and very open. And um, I just, I loved all things Anna. And so whenever we would, you know, bump into each other at other events, I would always gravitate towards her. Well, then we, everything shut down and we weren't doing networking and she was up to her eyeballs and her stuff and I was up to mine and in mine and then we met out at an, as things reopened at another networking event and I it was crowded and I felt so insecure mm-hmm. um, like being out with people again I felt like suddenly I had no social skills I didn't know how to do small talk I felt weird introducing myself to strangers totally totally a weird and foreign feeling and then I turn around and I see you know, above the mask, Anna's eyeballs. And I'm like, oh, thank God, a familiar face. <laughs> but I, I was so glad to see her and to, um, you know, just have like somebody that I knew a friendly face. Because at that point, I'd been listening to somebody talk from an emergency room for about 20 minutes. And they had they had no need for my service. And I really didn't have any need for theirs. But I just didn't want to have to deal with having to talk to somebody else. So I was so <laughs> grateful. Yeah. And it, I just recognized that the pandemic made me so much more introverted. Yeah. Like the walls closed in and I was okay with it. Did, yeah. did you have an, you know, an experience either similar or totally opposite? What was it like for you? Yeah, it was, it's funny having the two young boys in a weird way kind of helped because it gave both Anna and I a little bit of a focus at least. Um, I think it would have been, I definitely feel like, I was at a stage in my life, I I was in a chapter in my particular life right now, where I was better equipped to deal with a global pandemic. I can't imagine what it must have been like for, you know, kids in their 20-somethings, that stage in their life, young, free, carefree, single, kind of social. It must have been awful for them. It would have been awful for me. I think back to me in my 20s what my life was all about and all the things that I cared much more deeply for would, would have, all of those were taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for us, I think it was tough. Absolutely. But, you know, we definitely count ourselves as being on the, some of the lucky ones, you know, and also being self-employed, you know, it helped because both, both my, mine and Anna's work, obviously her was placement placing in, 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 in assisted living, that all died and then obviously me recruitment that all died briefly so we actually just were able but we had the freedom therefore actually just to kind of go right well let's just, just not think about work for three months and focus on schooling and um and and, and plow all of our energy and effort into in, into the kids um so we were able to do that and that came with some frustrations obviously too but i feel like we were some of the lucky ones we, we, we came out of it in, in pretty good shape. Well, I also want to commend both of you for, for your relationship making it, because I think that, you know, living life in a pressure cooker in a pandemic, as everyone's doing their own thing, working, all the things, 
it's really, really hard on a relationship. And, you know, some, some people went into that already hanging by a thread and the pressures of the pandemic were just enough to, to snap the thread. So I just, I give both of you um, props and have great respect for the fact that you were able to um, grow your respective businesses, focus on how best to support your kids um, and, and what they needed. And also, um, maintain your relationship and your your respective senses of self through all of this to get what I hope, you know, despite a new uh, variant, but I hope is closer to the other side. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that, Amy. Yeah, no, we we consider ourselves lucky there as well. You know, I know lots of, it was really shone a spotlight on, on, on a lot of relationships, didn't it? That, and not all of them were able to bear it, but you know, we, we were, we were, we were lucky. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you were telling me about the, the funeral and, and participating virtually, but wasn't there something else that you did that was kind of special that you had created for your dad? Yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a song for him, actually, which was the ultimately then played at his funeral. Um, that all kind of, that all evolved sort of quite organically, but that was, a, so I... I, so, so, well, actually, my dad, first and foremost, always fancied himself as a bit as a, as a, as a bit of a music guy. His, okay. the, the reason he moved to England for the very, in the first place back in his late teens was he had desires to be a singer. So he came down literally like the kind of the, the, the streets paved with gold story. Of oh, coming that's down wild. To London and... The boys from Liverpool could do it. <laughs> Why not him? Yeah. And, um, uh, and obviously that didn't really work out, but so he's always, so, you know, and he's always big into music and, and, and I, I was always, you know, I learned to play the piano when I was a kid and was really obsessed with it and used to try and write songs and poetry at a very young age. And I think everyone thought actually that uh, that might be, I was doing it at such a young age. I think everyone thought that might be what I ultimately ended up going to do, but I don't know, just got a bit older and got into other things and kind of completely dropped the piano actually. And, almost to the point where I forgot everything that, uh, that I had learned. Um, but we did actually, we decided when we moved to this lovely big house we have now here in Texas, we always, when we lived in London in those squalid flats, we always promised ourselves <laughs> we'd have a front room with a piano in it. And we did that. So we bought a piano about two or three years ago. And since then I've kind of been practicing again and started to, you know, kind of remember the mechanics of it and, hadn't really started writing songs or compositions or anything like that I, you know I I didn't even really know I had that in me to be honest but with with my dad's deterioration and uh, and, and as it looked increasingly like uh, it might be the end my my mind immediately went to the next phase of like you know the funeral and will I be able to make it and then when it was established that when I decided that that, that I wouldn't be able to do it um I was obviously kind of heartbroken and guilty and wondering how I was ever gonna you know kind of reconcile that in later years um and this is gonna sound weird but the inspiration came from Anna and I were watching have you seen that movie with Will Ferrell about the Eurovision Song Contest no <laughs> It's hilarious. So basically, okay. I was not expecting you to say that this beautiful end of life tribute was in any way related to Will Ferrell. I know. We were watching this movie. It's about the Eurovision Song Contest, which you might not have heard of because it's obviously mostly a European thing. But Will Ferrell was in it, and they were songs that they were singing, and and, and I just suddenly had this light bulb moment where I thought, why don't I, um, why don't I write him a song? Actually, no, I think I might have got my timeline wrong here, actually. This was how, when Dad was deteriorating, he was still alive, but um, he was he was in hospital. He was, you know, they were thinking possibly, you know, he might have only a number of days left. That's when the inspiration struck. So my thinking was, why don't I, as a goodbye almost, or something that I just thought he might be able to respond to, even in his deteriorated state, I thought I'll write a song and I'll take a little video on my iPhone of me singing it for him and about him. And that'll get, he'll get a kick out of that. Um, and uh, so I, so I basically sat down and just started to kind of like mess around. 
and I don't know it just it just sort of came it just sort of came to me like it was almost like kind of pennies from heaven like I you know I actually don't know if I could go sit down there now and do it again I actually don't know I haven't attempted to but I sat down and just this melody came to me and then the, the lyrics I've always been pretty good on because I was always quite poetic and so I managed to kind of like construct the lyrics which was almost like a bio of his life and it started to just form in front of me and it just started and, and I was really proud of it and I took what was a um, initially I just took a very kind of crass um, video of it and and then my my brothers played it to him at his bedside and, and and then took a video also of his reaction to it and that was wonderful and that was the only reason for it at the time actually and then fast forward um, um, when he passed and the funeral decision and everything like that uh, what I decided to do at that point was actually to um, to to really kind of brush up the video of it so i got my enlisted the help of my brother-in-law who's a sound engineer i enlisted the help of neighbors for equipment microphone and everything else and you know obviously posted the story on the facebook page and you know and, and the support that i got from the neighborhood was wonderful people came around with you know amps and mics and everything else and and so i sung the song on a video, did a much better version of the video, did a really good sound quality take of the audio as well. Um, and we decided that what we were going to do was that I would, we would, um, we would play that at his funeral. And so in my absence of not being able to be there, um, um, we obviously had the sort of projector and everything hooked up and in the middle of the service, they played that song and and I was obviously live streaming into the into the funeral, and it just was wonderful to to be able to sort of be there in some way. Almost, it was like a kind of like a like a song eulogy, I suppose. Um, and it re it hugely helped the um, the the grieving process for me. It gave me something to focus on, you know, to write that song and then to film it, and then. It allowed me to, in some way, be there at his funeral, even though I couldn't be physically. And, um, you know, and then I ultimately, because once I had the finished article, I put it up on my personal Facebook page and neighborhood Facebook page and read it. I put it up on social media. And the responses and the feedback I got were so wonderful. I was really proud of myself. It just, something great came out of it. And I just knew that in terms of truth, my dad being so into music himself and always secretly having wanted to have been a performer, but being of a generation where actually, you know, unless you were on stage or on the telly, no one got to see your stuff. I know he would have loved that. That would have, I, it, it, he wouldn't, it, it, I couldn't have created a better tribute for him um, because he would have, it would have been what he would have wanted to do, I think. Um, and then, yeah, so uh, yeah, went out on social media and everyone was great about it. And it just, it really helped. It really helped me actually. It's, it, made the whole i i subsequently not had any kind of guilt about not being there at his funeral and i think it's entirely because of this song and being able to do that for him well i think it's another another way that you've contributed to his legacy you know by by doing something that he wasn't able to do um kind of in in honor of him I think that's that's really yeah. beautiful but also with Will Ferrell as your muse I don't absolutely. know absolutely I mean does it get any better <laughs> yeah no you're so right absolutely like you know that the legacy thing I guess I kind of my dad was not brilliant at kind of cultivating his own legacy so I think it falls to me and his sons to do that for him ultimately that's what we all want out of life isn't it you feel that way as you get older you know what is your legacy? What do you leave behind? If it's your children, great. But like, you know, um, so I felt like I was able to do that for him. And, it, and in the end, you know, and I don't, and I, you know, if it wasn't for the guilt of, of being far away and, you know, that, that was the rocket that I had to do it in the first place. I think if, if I was just in the UK, you know, I would have just been there at his bedside and I'd have gone to his funeral. And I don't think I would have been inspired to, to write that thing. So almost the distance and the, and, and the associated guilt of that was was the fuel that that kind of led to the inspiration to, to, to do the thing in the first place and and if you if you gave me a choice now of 
you know, you can go, you could have attended that, you know, bleak six person funeral in England after 10 days of quarantine for your father to say goodbye. Or you could have done what you did do, which was, you know, create, I was going to say a piece of art, but that, that sounds terrible and wanky. I'll delete that part. But, but create this song, <laughs> create this song for, for him, about him, um, you know, that you wouldn't have done, you know, I would have, I, I choose that every time, you know, you can, you can go and attend the funeral, but the song doesn't exist or you can like do it the way you did it. I would choose the way I did it every time. And, and, and that, that is, I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll always be thankful that I, I took that decision. Well, we've, we talked about it in another episode. I think it was the why episode talking about um, traditionally kind of um, in the broadest sense, like a, feminine model of, of grieving and a more masculine model and women tend to be the talkers and men are the ones that need a project. They go into the shed and build 27 birdhouses and yeah. you know, there one is not better than the other. And, you know, myself, I have, I've smushed them together. I need the project, the, the project because I have so much energy around those emotions. Um, but I also need to talk them out and it kind of, in some ways it sounds like, you know, creating this piece of art was your birdhouse. Yeah. Oh God, I'm that classic male character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the. I'm totally the. You know, my language of love is 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 cooking food for people and doing things for people, uh, and not so much. I. You know, I'm not. I'm not hugely verbose on that side of things. <laughs> well, I. I just thank you for sharing your story so openly. Do you? Would you be willing to share the song? with us as well like if you send me a link can i post oh of course it yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be such an honor yeah it's on my facebook page actually and if well, we aren't already let's connect on facebook and then you can just lift this i think you actually i'll send it to you in any way just in case you can't get it from facebook but it's, okay. thank you thank you so much for being my guest no problem at all uh, it's been a pleasure